0: tonight you can open it at this time to joshua chapter 7 the book of joshua chapter 7 and if you need a bible uh... stew our lovely usher is walking up the middle aisle right now with a stack of bibles in his hand and he would love to drop one off to you so that you can follow along in our study so if you need a bible just let him know so that he can uh, give that to you we're in chapter 7 tonight of the book of joshua Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. In other words, what makes sin bad is not the fact that God says don't do it. But God says don't do it because he knows what will happen if we do. It's a principle, a point that we see played out in very practical ways in our chapter tonight in Joshua 7. The children of Israel are now fully entrenched in the conquest of the promised land. The city of Jericho has fallen miraculously. God knocked the walls down flat and they took the city almost effortlessly And now they're on to the next one as they see Ai, the city of Ai, and it's spelled just like it sounds, Ai, now in the crosshairs of their conquest. Momentum has been established. Confidence and assurance have tightly wound themselves around the hearts of God's people and the enemies are filled with fear knowing that their days are numbered. However, if you've already looked down, you'll see that chapter 7 begins with the word, but. Though things have gone well thus far, and though it looks like they will continue to go well, it begins with the word, but. And God's people are faced now suddenly with the sobering reality, and they're taught the timeless and important lesson of what sin does. Our topic tonight is one that is seldom talked about in Christian circles. It's very seldom that you'll hear a teaching or a sermon given on this subject. It's probably one of the least esteemed subjects that exists in Christendom, and it's one that, quite frankly, most of us wish would just go away. It's sin. But the reality of this concept this subject is that it's something that we face it's something that we have to deal with constantly and it's a topic that the bible doesn't ignore and therefore it's something that we have to look at now in this chapter tonight we have four questions that get answered concerning this concept of sin and they are these if you're Uh, One of those people that wants to know where we're going ahead of time or wants to take notes ahead of time. Four questions that will be answered. Number one is, what are sin's symptoms? Or what happens once sin is present in the lives of God's people? What is the fallout of that? What harm does sin do? Number two, what is the progression of God's discipline or God's dealing with sin when it's present in the lives of God's people? Number three, how sin takes root and how sin progresses in the life of a child of God. Not the symptoms now, but the actual, we'll call it a disease itself. What is the course that the disease of sin takes once it's rooted in the life of a child of God? And then finally, number four, how is it purged and removed? How is sin removed from God's and so we begin in verses 1 through 4 seeing what the sin was that brought on this subject it says in verse 1 it says but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan the son of Carmi the son of Zabdi the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took of the accursed things so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel We're told that a trespass has been committed. Now, there are three words that are translated sin in the Hebrew language. And they all mean slightly different things. The first word that you'll read in the English language is the word iniquity. And what iniquity means is when you just miss the mark. It means that you were trying to hit it. You were doing your very best, but because your skill didn't match up with your desire, you missed the mark and you sinned. It's an iniquity. The second word that's used for sin is the word sin. You know, and it speaks of uncleanness. Just what we are. We are sinners. We, we understand that. That's a, a common held truth even amongst those that don't believe. And then the third word for sin is the sin, the word that's used here in verse 1 of chapter 7. And that's the word transgression or trespass. And what that word means is willful, on purpose, under, uh, you know, calculated disobedience. God drew a line in the sand in our vision, in our hearing, and he said, don't cross this line. And we look God in the face and we cross the line basically with the defiant attitude of, okay, now what? And that's what this is. That's what's going on right now. It says that there was a trespass amongst the children of Israel. And he tells us that it was in the manner of the accursed things. Now you recall in the last chapter, God spoke to Joshua and he said, the spoils from Jericho belong to me. You're not to take any of the spoil, the gold, the silver, the flocks, the herds, anything that has any value at all is to be brought into the treasury of the Lord's house because this is the firstfruits. They weren't to touch it. It was the Lord's. And it was repeated. They were told not once but twice that they weren't to take anything from it. But it's in this area of that command that the trespass or the transgression was committed. Now, the man who is guilty of this, we're told his name there also, his name was Achan. Achan means trouble. That's what his name literally means in Hebrew. Now, that's funny to us because we know that in Bible times, people named their kids according to what they expected from their lives. And and you can almost hear, uh, you know, Light-hearted father holding his son for the first time, looking at him and saying, "This one's trouble," you know, "This one's trouble," and that's what they named him. His name was Achan, and believe me, he will be Achan by the end of uh, this situation um, because of what happens. It tells us so. There's a trespass in the accursed things. The guilty party is Achan, and it says that the result of it, at the end of the verse, there is that the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, it's worth observing here that God is not happy because of what has happened. And it is true that anger, I'm sorry, sin angers God. There is something that is incited in the heart of God when a child of God sins against him. Now, the reason why God is angry is not the reason why you and I might think. In Hebrews chapter 12 Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews talked about God's discipline, his chastisement. And he compares it to how an earthly father chastises or disciplines his son when his son steps out of line. And he makes a comparison between our father in heaven and our earthly fathers that chastise us on earth. And he says that there's a similarity in that chastisement took place. But there's a difference. Listen, there's a difference in the reason why. See, we as fathers, earthly fathers for our children, oftentimes we discipline our kids because we want to be able to control them. And I don't mean that in like the, the harsh way of like domineering, iron-fisted, you know, Stalinistic type controlment. But, but rather it's setting governors and boundaries so that they know what's right and what's wrong. That's why we do it. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about God's discipline. Verse 9, chapter 12, he says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. But he, God, he does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. In other words, there's a difference between the anger of man when rebellion is present and the anger of God in the face of the same. And here's what that is. God can control any one of us anytime he wants. He could flip a switch and he could change our behavior. He could do that if he wanted to. He's chosen not to. It's not a matter of control because he feels like, oh, I need to have control over my people, and they're stepping out of line, and so I'm angry because I can't control them. They're out of control, and he's frustrated. That's not the idea. The idea is that he has something for us. He wants us to be a partaker of him, of himself, of his holiness, of his essence, of his nature to walk in his light, to drink of his water, to be led by his pastures. And what he knows is that if we're living a life of sin or if we're allowing sin to rule and reign in our lives, then we cannot experience what it is that he wants us to experience. That sin offsets God's ability to do in our lives the things that he is wanting to do in our lives. And that's the reason why God is angry with his people. We already know. His intentions for them are good. He's bringing them into the promised land. He's giving them an abundance, a land of milk and honey, houses that they didn't build, fields, vineyards that they didn't plant, olive yards, vineyards, all this blessing he wants to drop upon them and the anger that he's experiencing here is because they are going to sabotage the very blessing that he's seeking to lay down in their path. And so he's not happy with them in that. Now, let's see what happened, verse 2. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and he spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua, and they said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up, and that's just really a small fraction, went up from there, from the people, but they fled then before the men of Ai. They lose. They get their tails tucked. They go in confidently thinking that they're going to experience quick and easy victory But on the contrary, they find themselves fleeing for their lives. And we learn in the next verse that 36 people will die as a result of this fleeing, this failure there in this small, insignificant, seemingly insignificant battle there in Ai. Now what we learn also in these two verses here between verse 1 and verse 4 is that it wasn't just Achan who was out of line amongst the children of Israel. There's two other things that are going on here that played a part in this defeat, in this loss. Number one is that there was prayerlessness. We see here that Joshua didn't seek the Lord at all. He didn't ask God what his counsel was or how God would have them go up in this next battle, but he took it upon himself to just send out the messengers, go out in faith, and to not seek God at all. I believe the most vulnerable place that we exist in our christian experience is after our greatest victories it's when we have a great breakthrough or we see god working in our lives or something happens where where god just shows himself in such a powerful way or, or there's something monumental that happens that we've been waiting for that's the time when we become the most vulnerable we have a tendency to say and i'm speaking for myself god thank you so much i've got this Thank you so much for clearing that obstacle, but I'll be good from here. Now, now we would never do that outright or say that audibly, but it's the position that we take with our actions and our attitudes. That is the spirit of prayerlessness. I don't need you, God. I can do this on my own. And we see Joshua falling into that here. He didn't seek the Lord. The second thing then in verse 3 there that added to this defeat was not just prayerlessness, but also presumption. Looking at things on the outward appearance and then making decisions based on only that which is seen and not that which is invisible. To just look at the outward things and to make decisions. Hey, this is just such a small city. Those that study biblical archaeology, if you look at Haley's Bible handbook or any of the other you know things on that, there's a puzzle with Ai because when they did the excavations and they found the city of Ai, they consistently dated the ruins to be prior to that of Jericho. In other words, the consensus amongst the archaeologists is that Ai was destroyed long before, by a couple of hundred years, Jericho was. Now, we just learned that Jericho was conquested in the last chapter. Ai comes after Jericho. So what's the discrepancy? Here's what I think it is. I think that Ai really had been a place of ruins even by the time Joshua came into the promised land. That's why the spies who went there said, hey, this is cake. We could go up there with just a few guys. We don't need to weary all of the people. We'll be able to take this city almost effortlessly. They looked at things according to what it appeared to be outwardly. They made battle plans accordingly, and they found that they failed. It's a danger for you and I as well. When we make decisions, when we make plans, when we order our steps according to only what we see outwardly in a situation, the best that our intelligence or our wisdom or our sight or vision can provide without seeking the hand of the Lord. Bobby and I get together, you know, at least once a week and we, we talk and pray and, you know, we just discuss Church stuff, ministry, and the whole thing, and you know what happened during the week, what happened you know and we just we, we, we just talk, you know it's part of what we do you know in leading, and oftentimes, towards the end of going through everything, you know the question will be thrown out there: are we healthy? Are we where we're supposed to be? And, and what we always come back to you know between our, our, our talking amongst each other is, are we praying? Are we obeying? The lord's leading are we dependent upon him are we being spirit led and, and seeking the spirit's will for, for the church and for our lives or are we doing what we think is best and, and and doing things from the boardroom rather than from our knees and we'll ask that question and if we can say yeah we're praying yeah we're dependent upon the spirit yes we want god's will and not our own and yes jesus is the head and the reason for this church And the the answer always is that no matter what the playing field looks like, we're healthy. Not that we would ever want to be apathetic and, you know, sidelined or lazy, but if we're depending upon our own wisdom in anything in life, and that goes for you or me or anyone else, and we're not seeking the Lord's will and the Lord's counsel, then we're in a dangerous, vulnerable place. And we see that here, this presumption. Well, Achan's sin, Joshua's prayerlessness, the people's presumption, the result is that they flee before their enemies, 36 people lose their lives, and the people become discouraged. And so we move from number one, what the sin was, to now, if you're taking notes, what does sin do when it is present in the lives of God's people? What are sin's symptoms? What's the result of this sin of Achan? in the heart of the people. Notice with me in verse 5. It says, And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down at the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The first thing that sin does when it's present in our lives, and that's what we're talking about as we look at Joshua chapter 7, our lives is that it makes us vulnerable to defeat. Sin makes God's people vulnerable to defeat. Psalm chapter 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, or watch the city, or defend the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. In other words, what the psalmist is saying there is that there is a a divine defense that exists in the lives of God's people. That he watches out for us. You remember when Satan came to God over the issue of Job. And God said to Satan, he said, have you considered my servant Job that he loves righteousness and hates evil and he does what's right? And Satan replied and he said, yeah, but... You've put such a high wall of protection around him. I couldn't harm him. He, he, of course he, he praises you. He's, he's unpenetrable. I can't get at him. But if you let me in, and you let me take some shots at him, he'll curse you to your face. Now the idea there, why, why I bring that up, is, is not Job and, you know, who controlled the defense, but rather to realize that God puts a hedge of protection around you and I. He insulates us from invisible things that we can't see, that we wouldn't understand, that have the ability and the power to take us out, to wipe us out. And the idea is that if that hand of God's protection is taken away from our lives, it makes us vulnerable to what our enemies uh, would would be able to do and so it's an, it's essential that there be a defense within our lives Isn't it interesting that such a small and insignificant city such as ai Was able to chase down the people of god in such a powerful way and even take some of their lives The smallest thing can ruin the child of god when sin is present in your life and in mine when our defenses are compromised because of sin Notice that it says that they chased them all the way to the gates of, or the hill of Shebarim, that that name of that place. Nobody knows where Shebarim is, even to this day. It's not on any Bible maps, but the name of the city is interesting, and I believe significant, and purposely placed there by the, the Lord. It means this, it means the breaches. The breaches, what's a breach? A breach is a place where your armor is weakened, or undone. And that was the place where they had to flee back to. They were chased back to the breaches. And listen, Christian, whenever there's a defeat in your life, whenever you find yourself fleeing or backpedaling or backsliding, it always can be traced back to the breach, to the place where the vulnerability came in, where the sin opened up. Sin makes us vulnerable. Sin doesn't just make us vulnerable, but sin also causes confusion and grief. Look at verse 6. He says, Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over Jordan at all, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan! Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And then what will you do for your great name? Notice the confusion that Joshua is experiencing along with the children of Israel now in this situation. Victory had been promised to them. The walls of Jericho had fallen down flat and now they lose to such a small insignificant people there in ai what's going on lord why is this happening he uses that word alas you know we don't use that too much in today's language but you know what you know what alas means in the hebrew i looked it up because i was like i need to know what that word means here's what it means it means ah look it up it's a h h h h h that's what it is and that's what he says he says ah lord there's pain there's confusion. There's consternation. Why is this happening, Lord? One of the things that I value most in my Christian experience is to have a clear mind. I've, I so value God's gift of a clear mind that He gives. And it's not just to me. I believe it's something that God gives to all of His people is that we have the, 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 He gives us the vision and the stability and the peace to just understand where we're at and to know where our feet are landing when when we go and and i i I, that's a priceless thing to me our planet that we're on that we're sitting on right now is spinning at a rate of one thousand miles per hour that's how fast the earth rotates on its axis a thousand miles an hour at the same time our planet is spinning a thousand miles an hour it's also revolving around the sun. It makes an entire lap around the sun once every year, and in order to do that, it's moving 67,000 miles per hour. So we're spinning a 1,000, we're revolving at 67,000, but that's not all. Because our solar system is also on a circuit, it's on a course, and our solar system is moving 45,000 miles per hour. So we're spinning 1,000, we're revolving 67,000, that whole unit is moving at 45,000, but that's not all. Because the Milky Way galaxy that contains our solar system, which holds our planet, which is revolving around the sun, the Milky Way galaxy is also on a circuit and it's moving 1.4 million miles an hour through the universe as a whole. You wonder why you're spun out? You know, because we're on a giant gyroscope. That's where we are right now. And what's amazing to me is that we can be in that position and yet God can have us in a place where we are completely at rest, completely at ease. And sin upsets that. When there's sin, it brings confusion, it brings pain, and it eliminates from us our ability to understand where we are why we are where we are, and what God is doing in our lives. We lose all sense of stability. It's what we see happening in Joshua's life, and it happens in any child of God's life when we move out of the place of God's will for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said it this way. He said, for our rejoicing is this. Rejoicing is King James. I liked it better. He says, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Paul says, I, my, my rejoicing is the testimony of my conscience, that there is a peace inside of me that I know that I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be in God's hand and in God's plan for my life. Sin disturbs that. And we see it here in the life of Joshua and the children of Israel. It goes on, not just pain and confusion, but notice then in verse 10, the response that comes from the Lord. It says, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they, and notice that it's plural, that there were more people in on this thing than just Achan. We find out later in the chapter that his extended family, that his parents, his grown-up children were all akin to it, a part of it. He says, Israel has sinned and they also have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. The third effect or symptom of sin in the life of a child of God is that you cannot stand before your enemies. Is that you lose God's authority and God's protective and enabling power for you to have a victorious life. You lose that when you're in sin. The fourth thing right there also in verse 12 is that your name is moved from the category of at one with God to the category of doomed to destruction. I don't know about you, but I don't want my name in that list. Oh, I'm I'm okay with God. No, you're doomed to destruction. It's not going to go well for you because the way that you're walking, the thing that you're doing, where you're going is not going to be profitable. You're doomed. You're in that category you don't want to be in. That's a result of sin. And then finally, God says at the end of the verse, he says, neither will I be with you anymore. And that is that you forfeit the sense of God's presence among you. Let me tell you, Christian, that is the most priceless thing that you and I possess. Is the awareness, the fact of God's presence with us, moment by moment, day by day. And when you're walking in sin and you forfeit that, and you say, oh Lord, I would rather have this thing or that relationship or this indulgence or whatever it might be or this stubborn mindset, I'd rather have that than have you. It's a terrible place to be. And God says, I will not be with you unless you destroy from among you the accursed things. So sin symptoms are severe. We see them listed here. There's vulnerability. Our defenses are taken out. There's pain. There's confusion. There's weakness. We can't stand before our enemies. We find ourselves in a downward tailspin in our experience instead of an upward progression. And we lose the sense of God's presence. And that is just not where you want to be in this world, in this life, especially in this season. Well, how does God deal with it? Because he loves us too much to leave us in a place where there's sin within our lives. He doesn't just take his hand off and walk away and say, when you learn, when you figure it out, I'll come back. But he's faithful. He's a father. He sees what's going on. He knows us. And so he's faithful to bring us out of that situation, or rather bring that situation out of us. So how does he do it? Notice with me verse 13. It says, get up, sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. The first thing that God does when there is sin present in the life of one of his kids is that he brings it to the light. Now, we saw that take place back in Joshua's prayer a few verses ago. Joshua said, Lord, what gives? Why are we running away instead of winning? And God said, the reason is because there's sin in your life. And then he told Joshua what it was. He says, it's in the manner of the accursed thing. Now, the same thing is true in your life and in mine. When we fall into a particular sin or give ourselves to some area like that, we experience defeat. We know that something's wrong. We bring it to the Lord. We say, Lord, what is going on? And the Lord is faithful to reveal always in the hearts of his kids what the issue is. And listen, you're not stupid, and neither am I. When I'm not where I'm supposed to be, I know exactly what's going on. I usually know before I even say, Lord, why? And I just want to make sure, Lord, do, do you know? I, I think I know, but I just want to see if you really know, you know, kind of a thing. You've been there? Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one that sins. It's possible, you know. I mean, this is the Wednesday night crew. You guys are way holier than the Sunday morning crew, you know. it's It's a good possibility, you know. But God brings it to the light. He shows what it is. That's what he does. And sometimes, maybe it's just you and him that know. Nobody else knows what's going on in your life, in your heart, what's going on. God knows. You know. And God leaves it at that. He shows you what it is. Well, then it goes on. God tells Joshua, verse 14, In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. Bring forth the twelve tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So the second thing that God does in the life of a a child of God when there is sin present is that he gives... Listen, and you can write this down, is that he gives space for repentance. He gives space for repentance. Now God could have very easily said to Joshua... It's Achan, it's under his tent, it's buried there, you'll find it. It's a wedge of gold, it's silver, it's a garment, and, and the silver's underneath. He could have told them right then and there, and the issue could have been dealt with and done away. But God didn't do it that way. He said, what I want you to do is call the tribes. And then I'm going to tell you what tribe is the offend- where the offense is, is happening. Then take that tribe and separate it by families. And I'm going to tell you what family it is. Then take that family. Then I'm going to tell you which household it is. And you're going to take that household, and then we'll separate them by individuals, and I'm going to tell you which individual it is. Now, God already knew what it was, and he could have told Joshua right then. What's he doing? He's giving Achan a chance to repent. Because now Achan is going to find out that, oh my goodness, God knows what's going on, and and, and this thing could come out. And so God gives him time now to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to dig in his heels or is he going to come forth and is he going to repent? Is it going to come down to Joshua taking him by the hand and saying, tell me what you did? Or is he going to come forth himself? God gives space for repentance. Then, number three, what God does when sin is in our lives, after he brings it to the light, after he gives us space for repentance, then he begins to turn the heat up. Watch what happens here in verse 16. It says, so Joshua rose early in the morning and he brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So Achan's there and he's thinking, okay, well, that could happen. One out of 12. Hey, I mean, it could happen that, that, that he gets the tribe right that God could know, or that Joshua, <laughs> I don't know. Verse 17. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family now of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Now it's getting a little bit closer. You see, it happens to you and I. There, there's something there. We know what it is. We don't want to let it go. We're trying to justify it. We're trying to say, no, 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 this is okay. This is under grace. I'm allowed to, to enjoy this in my life. This isn't sin. But 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 yet we, we know we wouldn't want anybody else to know that we do it. you know. But, but it's okay between me and God. But then we start to have a couple of close calls. We almost get caught. We almost get found out. You know, we almost maybe die because of something that we've done to ourselves. or You know, you apply it to your situation, the heat turns up. Our heart is beating fast. We know that there's an issue, there's a problem, there's something going on, and God is putting the squeeze on, it's getting closer. We're running out of room. That's what's happening to Achan. It says, verse 18, Then he brought the household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was now taken. So, after God brings it to the light and then gives space for repentance and then turns up the heat, if the child of God does not come forth and repent and give confession and get it washed, dealt with, and taken away, the fourth thing that happens, and it always happens, Christian, is exposure. Is that now the thing is known, it's found out. And God will be gracious, He will wait, but it will come to a point where the sin has to be exposed. And let me tell you something, that is the worst, most painful, and messiest way for sin to be revealed, is when God has to bring it to that point where it's exposed, and there's egg on the face of the Christian, upon the church, upon everything. It's a mess when exposure has to happen, because God isn't going to let sin continue, you know. It's not a good thing. And so we see it happen now. He's taken, and in verse 19, it says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now we move to our third question that's answered here in this chapter, and that is, what is the progression that sin makes in the heart of the individual? We've already looked at the symptoms, you know, the grief, the pain, the, the, the vulnerability, all that stuff. We've looked at God's process of bringing it out. That's what we just finished. Now we look at what does sin do? How does sin work? Sin is very, it's almost scientific, the way it works in someone's life. How does it work? He says, make confession. And it says now, Achan, verse 20, answered Joshua and he said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Now, Achan, out of his own mouth, describes the progression of all sin. He says, I saw, I coveted, and I took. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life i let something grab my affections and then i desired it and so i went after it and that's the progression that all sin takes when it comes in contact uh, in the life of a, a believer there's an incredible thing here i love this don't you love when the bible is poetic or prophetic and and you can see the layers of meaning in things notice at the end of verse 21 there what he says when he when he tells them where they are he says i coveted and i took them and he says and there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it the tent in the bible always speaks of our bodies second corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 paul the apostle called his body his tent Peter does the same thing in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, pretty soon I'm going to heaven and I'm going to get rid of this tent, this body of mine. The earth or the soil in the scripture is always symbolic of the heart or the soul. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the four soils that one, you know, the seed fell by the rocks, by the wayside, among the thorns, and on good ground. And he was talking about the soil of the soul of the heart. And notice what Achan says here. He says, I saw something, and what I did is I put it in the soil in my tent. Sin always starts in the heart, in the secret place. That's the picture that you see here. It's in the earth, in the middle of my tent. And he says, notice at the end of the verse, it says, with the silver under it. Great picture. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. The root is at the bottom. He says the silver is on the bottom. And that's what it was that got Achan. It was a love of money. The gold, the silver, the Babylonian garment. That's what he wanted. That's what he coveted. God gives us, you and I as Christians, he gives us a certain immunity to sin. He gives us the ability by his spirit to say no. The world can't do that. If you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then the Bible says that you're a slave to sin and that you are going to do what sin tells you to do. That's the, the plight of unsaved man, is that you're a slave to sin. But when you're born again, God gives you, by the power of the Spirit, the ability to say no. But when you don't, because He doesn't violate your will, and you give yourself to sin and you allow sin to now get past the immunity that God's put there and it lodges itself in, in your heart. That seed of sin is planted there and it germinates. There's a process that sin takes and it's true for every single person and it's true for every single sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It could be adultery. It could be alcoholism. It could be greed. It could be hate. It could be anger. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It does the same thing. And here's what it does. When the seed of sin germinates in the heart, the very first thing that it does is that it cripples, it annihilates your ability to see down the road. It kills your foresight or your farsight, if you would. It, it, it disables your ability to see where it's ultimately going to lead you. You're blinded to that. The second thing it does after it blinds you to what's going to happen in the end is that it then binds you. It it, it captivates your desires and ensnares them, enslaves them to what that sin wants to do so that you can't get free from it. So you can't see what's going to happen if you continue down this path and now you can't get away you find yourself chained to it You're stuck in it So now these two things have happened And now the third one begins now that it has blinded you and bound you now sin goes to work in your life And here's what it does is that one by one it systematically begins to destroy every area of your life first it goes after your relationships It'll grow and it'll put the squeeze on every relationship and it'll usurp the place of every one of those things. And and so the marriage will dissolve. Family life will become crazy. People become a burden instead of a blessing. Just relationships dissolve and you become isolated, alone, and, and all of those things begin to falter because sin destroys relationships. Then it'll go after your business. And, and when I say that, I'm not talking about where you punch the clock necessarily. It might be that. But I'm talking about the thing that you were created to do. The thing that makes you tick. The thing that you live for. That, that the gifts, the, enjoy, the, you know, the, the, the blessing of God, the thing that he made you for, it begins to destroy that and you become disinterested in it. You lose all motivation to do it and, and you start to perform poorly. Things just falter, they break apart and, and, and your business suffers. Then sin goes after your amusements, your hobbies, the things that you delight in in your free time. Maybe you're an artist or maybe you, know, you work on cars or whatever, but sin will destroy that. It kills the desire, the drive, the motivation. And, and one by one, it just consumes. It'll destroy every area of your life. And if it goes unchecked and if it's not dealt with, Ultimately, sin will kill you. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, it will kill you. And that's what sin does. It, does it. It's, it doesn't discriminate, and it doesn't matter what the sin is. It does that every time. And we see Achan here talking about this, this very thing in, in his life. And so sin has a course that it runs in our hearts. Well, how do you get rid of it? How is sin dealt with? How is it eliminated from the life of the believer? Notice in verse 22. It says So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And then they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of achor to this day How is sin purged brought out of the life of a believer you and I Well number 1 you tell Joshua Joshua said to Achan back a couple of verses ago he said confess Confess, tell me what you have done and make confession to the Lord your God. Don't hide it from me. You confess it, not to Joshua, but to Joshua. Joshua, our Joshua, to Jesus. If sin needs to be dealt with, if it needs to be taken away, you tell Jesus about it. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is homologeo in the Greek, and it means homo is the same, and logos is the word, so it's the same word. In other words, you bring your sin to Jesus, and you say the same thing about it that he says about it. Lord, this is sin. This thing in my life, I've been hanging on to it, and now it's hanging on to me. And Lord, I'm bringing it to you, because I can't deal with it myself. Now, oftentimes what happens is that because a person, a Christian, you and I, because we recognize that we don't have power to get rid of the sin, I love what happens next in the text. It says that Joshua sent messengers to go find the thing that was there. See, I can picture Achan, because I am Achan. You're Achan. There's Achan in all of us. And, and if I was Achan during those days when Joshua was separating everybody by tribes and families and, and clans and men, I would be aching. and here's what I'd do. I would go, oh my goodness, I need to deal with this. I can't live like this. I can't even, I can't. when am I ever going to use that gold or silver? Everybody's going to know where it came from even if I get away with it. And I'd be going through this thing and then I would do this. I would say, that's it. I'm telling them. I'm just going to tell them. I'm going to tell them I did it. Maybe they'll have mercy on me. And then here's what I'd do. I would go to the tent. I'd walk over. I would roll back the thing. I would dig up the box. I would see the gold, the silver, the garment, and I would fall in love with them all over again. I would go, oh. You know, maybe I 'll just wait one more day and see if they, see if they get a little closer. Maybe they take another tribe or another family. I'm just going to wait just a little bit longer on this one, and i put it that 's what would happen. Because, and this is what happens to you and me, because that thing that holds us that's too strong for us. we want to be free from it. We recognize that we're a shell of what we once were. We ask the question, "How did I get here? How did I become like this? This isn't who I am. But then once it's time to now deal with the thing, we're sucked right back into it again and we don't have the ability to do it. And so when we confess our sin and we bring it to Jesus and we say, Lord, I can't do this, free me from it. Then he doesn't say, go get it and bring it over here. He sends messengers and he digs it out himself. That's what it means at the end of 1 John 1, 9 when it says, and to cleanse us. The word cleanse is catheterize in the Greek. You ever have a catheter? You get the idea? Removes waste? That's what he does. He removes waste from us. He only has the ability to do that. So we confess it. He sends the messengers now to go do it. But there's only one more problem with this whole issue of sin. Is that there's only one way for sin to really be dealt with. And that's death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Which means that if you sin, what you receive as payment for that sin is death. And That's what happens to Achan. I mean, he loses everything. By the way, that's number five in the sin's consequences category. You lose everything. You think you're going to win, that you'll come out on top, but you end up losing it all. He loses everything. And then he dies. He's stoned with stones, and then he's burned with fire. You say, man, that's harsh. That's why I skipped Deuteronomy. And you snuck it into Joshua. How did that happen? You know, I was so careful, you know. Sin is severe. What about the 36 men that lost their lives because of what Achan did? goes right back to the beginning of the study. You say, well, God could have spared those lives. It's God's fault those 36 men died. No, it's not. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. It was Achan's fault 36 men lost their lives. And it was just that Achan should lose his in that instance. Death is the penalty for sin. But what if this happened? What if, what if, what if, Joshua there, looking at Achan, bearded face, sweat, dirt, fear in his eyes, looking at Joshua, Achan, thinking in his mind as he looked at Joshua that day, Joshua with sword in his hand, confidently standing, bold and sure, knowing who he was and what God had called him to do and what needed to be done in that instance. And you have confidence, assurance, and righteousness, looking down at defeat and damnation and death and fear. And all of a sudden, Joshua in that place, looking at Aiken, looked at him, and he said, you know what, Aiken?" He took off his hat. It's, you know, mal, male, whatever you call that. He puts it on Achan's head. He gives him his sword. And he takes off his robe, whatever it is that he's wearing, and he puts it upon him and unlaids himself of all of his armor, and he puts it upon Achan. And he says, you know what, Aiken? I don't want you to die. But someone's got to. So you take the sword, you take this stone, and I'm going to do it. And that day Joshua, the one that had been called to lead the army of the Lord, was put to death by the one who was condemned. Because someone has to die. That's exactly what our Joshua did. Because you and I, we stand condemned. Our sin has separated us from God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned aside. There is none righteous, no, not one. The poison of snakes is under our tongues. We're quick to shed blood. That's God's analysis of us as he looks at us but he says you know what i don't want you to die my plan for you is greater it's better and so i'm going to take the stones and our joshua took our place in death so that we could live and that's why you and i can stand righteous before a holy god not because we're sinless not because we're perfect not because we're pure but because he paid the price in full for us to be forgiven, and for us to be free, for us to be saved. and We stand tonight saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But make no mistake, Christian, if you let the seed of sin take root within your heart, then you're going to bear the consequences of its work as it slowly, systematically routes every area of your life and leaves you a shell of what God would have you to be. Joshua chapter 7 is a warning, a sobering warning. There's hope through Jesus, but there's death in sin. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, for these lessons, for this word. I know tonight, Lord, That in this crowd, in this room, there are some here. From the very beginning of this, Lord, they're squirming in their seat. Knowing that there's something going on inside the soul that maybe only you know about. But that they can relate as we've gone through. And they're seeing the effects of that sin as it works and destroys and ruins. And so I pray tonight, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. That you would bring restoration. That you would bring repentance. That you would bring healing and redemption. And that you would reveal yourself tonight to be the God who saves. To be our Joshua who took our place in judgment. And that you would help and that you would remove those things. Father, we know that only you can do it. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would move upon our hearts right now. That you would bring repentance by the power of your Spirit. That you would bring freedom. We ask that you would loose the bands of wickedness. That you would open the eyes that have been blinded. And that you'd restore what the locust and the canker worm have eaten. We pray with David, Lord, who said, "Search me, O God, and know my thoughts; try me, and then lead me in the way everlasting." We pray, Lord, that we would be a holy people, and that we would be victorious. That you would have your ways, you do your work within our lives. Lord be with us. pray that we would take these things seriously, Lord, and that we'd allow your Spirit to convict us. If you're here tonight and the Lord's dealing with you on something and you know that you need to take a step of saying, Lord Jesus, I need to be free from this. I just welcome you as Lori and the band closes in song. If you need to come and just maybe kneel up here in the front and, and, and talk to Jesus, to bring it to Joshua. Yeshua ask for his healing, to ask for his forgiveness. Spend the time, and you know that you need to break free, that there's a step that you need to take because it's got a hold of your heart. He's here tonight. He loves you. He sent his son to prove it on the cross and died. His desire for your life and mine is that we would have victory, that we'd go from strength to strength. He knows the plans that he has for us. Thoughts of peace and not for evil to bring us a future and a hope. His thoughts are only good, but he knows that there's things that will wipe us out. And he wants to free us. As Laurie begins to sing, I just welcome you. To just come. It's not to be embarrassed. You don't have, no one's going to make you confess anything out loud, but if you just need to, to, to be before the Lord. The front of the church is open.